Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, this morning, we're, we're turning our attention to chapter 6 and looking at a, a portion of the conversation surrounding the first I am statement of Jesus Christ. Uh, throughout his Gospel, uh, John records seven I am statements which serve as, as metaphors of Christ's true identity. They help us understand the depths of his saving grace. They show us how he ministers to our deepest needs. They remind us that he is the only source of satisfaction, direction, protection, hope, peace, and purpose in our lives. And the first I am statement comes in a section that often that scholars often call the bread of life discourse. And it comes this discourse comes on the heels of two miracles of Jesus. The first miracle happens at the start of chapter 6. Christ takes five loaves of bread and two fish from a young boy's sack lunch and multiplies it over and over again until 5,000 men and their families had their fill. And as you can imagine, after they finished their food, the, the crowd was buzzing with excitement. They exclaimed in, in verse 14, this indeed is the prophet who has come to the world. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses foretold, foretold of a coming prophet when he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is him, it is to him you shall listen. And so for generations, the Israelites are looking for this prophet that Moses told them about looking for the one who would do signs and wonders like Moses, looking for the one who would speak with the voice of God like Moses. And they believed that this work of Christ could mean that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But for his part, uh, Christ sensed their desire to, to grab him and, and sort of take him by force to be the king of Israel. He knew they wanted a political leader who would provide for their physical needs. He, he knew they wanted a, a military general who would ride in on a white horse and who would deliver them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so he saw those intentions plain and clear, and so he withdrew to the mountain alone. And then in 16 through 21, he completed another miracle. So when the evening arrived... Christ is still up on the mountain by himself, and the disciples decide to sail across the Sea of Galilee without Christ. However, a few hours into their journey, they, they run into trouble. As the sea became rough and the wind started to blow, the disciples, who had a handful of experienced fishermen among them, by the way, they started freaking out. And they were even more frightened when they saw this shadowy figure coming across the lake. But Christ calmed them and said, It is I, don't be afraid. He settled their nerves. He settled the sea. And they steered the boat to dry land. And so as we pick up the narrative in verse 25, we'll see Christ build off the foundation of these two miracles from the previous day to draw their attention to his true identity. So look at verse 25. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So in the preceding verses, we learn the crowd multiplied overnight. After watching Jesus disappear into the wilderness alone and watching the disciples leave in their boat, 
Most of the crowd just decided to camp out at the base of the mountain and wait for Jesus to come back. And as they're waiting, the legend started growing. The stories of Christ's ability to heal the sick, mend the broken, and feed the hungry quickly spread to neighboring villages. And by morning light, a small fleet of boats had arrived to see him, but he wasn't there. And so they go, they go looking for him. When they find him, they ask him, when did you come here? Or better yet, how did you get here? There was only one boat on the shore last night, and you didn't get on it. So, so did you build a, a raft out of branches? Did you walk around the lake? What did you do? And their simple question jumpstarts a, a fascinating dialogue where Jesus shares the gospel three different times in three different ways before offering a final explanation of his identity as the bread of life. So first, look at his answer in verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. His seal. Now, Jesus could have said, Yes, I walk on water too. Right? He, he could have added another page to his story. He could have continued to, to grow his legacy. Right? It's not a big deal. I took a midnight stroll across the lake. Y'all should have seen the disciples' faces. They were freaking out and screaming. I'm pretty sure Matthew was crying. It was hilarious. Right? He, could have, he could have built on that to prove who he was, but he didn't. Instead, he bypassed their initial question, and he cut straight to the heart of the matter. He essentially said, you aren't seeking me because you've seen signs. You don't understand the spiritual significance of my ministry. You don't truly believe for one second that I'm the Messiah. No, you're motivated by desire for food. You're being driven by your stomachs, not your hearts. And notice there in verse 27, he planted the first gospel seed. It says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So there's gospel lesson number one. Don't pursue the perishable, pursue the eternal. Don't pursue the perishable, pursue the eternal. You probably don't know the name, but in the late 1800s, there was a man named C.T. Studd, who was one of the most famous athletes in the world. With a last name like Studd, that, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. But he was a bona fide star on England's cricket team. I mean, he was the Tom Brady or, or LeBron James of his time. However, at the peak of his powers... Stud wrestled with the thought that his life was yielding little eternal value. And eventually, his convictions would drive him to quit cricket and spend the rest of his days serving as a missionary to China, India, and Africa. And when asked about his sudden radical change in direction of his life, C.T. Stud would often say, We have one life, 
It will soon be past. What we do for God is all that will last. What we do for God is all that will last. And, and that became sort of a, a life motto for C.T. Studd, and it, it's something that we see coming directly from what Jesus says here, from this, this New Testament principle. Don't work for the perishable, work for the eternal. Now, have you ever considered how much time, effort, and energy goes into filling your stomach with food? You know, you take inventory of the pantry, you make a grocery list, you drive to the store, you prep sides, you take the meat out of the freezer at 7 a.m. so you can cook it at 7 p.m. You're always intentional about working for the food that perishes, right? I can say in, in raising three kids, there are often days there's a lot of things that we don't get done that we would like to do, but our kids do eat every day. Right? We are always intentional about working for the food that perishes. But what about the food that endures to eternal life? If you ask that same question, how much time, how much effort, how much energy is reserved for filling your heart and your mind with the truths of the gospel? Do you set aside time for reading the word? Do you emphasize prayer in your daily routine? Do you prioritize Christian community over other opportunities? Don't miss the point here. You, you have to eat. If you smoke a Boston butt for 12 hours for the glory of God, you better invite your pastor to come and feast with you. Okay, You have to eat. But the point remains that our spiritual needs are far greater than our physical needs. This is why Christ tells the crowd, stop chasing after perishable things. Stop searching for your fill with money, recognition, relationships, accolades, and achievements. Decrease your effort towards the perishable and increase your effort towards the eternal. Now look at verse 28. They hear Jesus say this, and it says, And they said to him, What must we do? to be doing the works of God. So they fixated their attention on the word work. And that's not overly surprising. They basically responded, okay, Jesus, you want us to work? You don't want us to work for perishable things. You want us to work for eternal things. So what must we do to achieve eternal life? What do we need to do? They wanted to check the right boxes. They wanted to complete the right task. They wanted to, to know the right steps. They, they wanted Jesus to give them what I've often heard called a combination lock solution. You turn it three times to the left and then three times to the right and then spin it around one more time and then it unlocks. Now you've heard sermons like this before. Someone says, here's five steps to a healthy marriage. Here's three daily patterns which will change your life, or whatever it may be. That's what they want Jesus to give them. And on the other side of redemptive history, we can fall into the trap of not seeing ourselves in the story. We may read this and be tempted to say, how can they be so ignorant? You know, they're obsessed with works. 
but they can't work their way into heaven. What are they thinking? In church, let me say to you in love, be careful with that logic. Because we can be vulnerable to similar misunderstandings about justification by faith and not works. Do you know if you type, if I'm a good person, into Google, the top autocomplete result is, will I go to heaven? That's how most of the world is finishing that sentence. If I'm a good person, will I go to heaven? Now, I realize most of the room would proclaim, no, no, the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You can't reconcile with God without Christ. You are hopeless apart from the cross. But still, still, you should never bypass the opportunity to check your own heart because you can know it, you can understand it, you can recite it, you can write it on your doorpost, you can tattoo it on your arm, and you can still go and not live like it. Can I share with you something that I've learned during this season of my life? Just one thing. I've learned that the formula for spiritual burnout is completing many tasks for God without spending much time with God. It's completing many tasks for God without spending much time with God. And so when we come to these moments, we have to stop for self-evaluation. We have to ask hard questions. You have to say to yourself, what drives you to come to church? What, what motivates you to volunteer to serve? What inspires you to read scripture? What, why do you give your, your tithe? What compels you to pray? Are you driven by a desire to deepen your intimacy with Jesus Christ? Are you chasing after him? Are you carving out times to do things that stir your affections for him? Are you being shaped and molded into his image? Or are you checking boxes? Are you fulfilling your to-do list? Are you clinging to ritualistic practices? Are you trying to pre please others? And here's the question that gets at all of that. Is your faith driven by love or legalism? Is your faith driven by love or legalism? Are your works for God driven by love or legalism? So in verse 29, because we know what the answer was for most of the crowd there, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. Verse 29 says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here's gospel lesson number two. Salvation involves the work of God and the belief of man. And so Jesus is saying to them, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't do the work. God does the work. 
God has forged the path of redemption. God has sent me to live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, and defeat the grave once and for all. You simply believe. And so we we see this, this, this tension that comes up over and over again in the New Testament, that salvation involves both God's sovereignty and human responsibility, right? That God does the heavy lifting in sending Christ. God moves first in love, but we must believe in the one he has sent. But unfortunately, the crowd didn't. In fact, they're so skeptical that they asked for another miracle in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? You know, you fed 5,000. That wasn't really good enough. What else do you have for us? They go on to say, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're, they're comparing Christ and Moses. They challenge Jesus and say, if you are who you say you are, what miracle are you going to perform for us? What sign are you going to do for us so we may see and believe? And they point back to the Old Testament. In Exodus 16, as Moses and the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness after their escape from slavery, the Israelites started becoming increasingly cranky because they were without food. Keep in mind, God had just saved them from the massive army of the Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea And the nation of Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then he closed those walls of water, and all of the Pharaoh's army drowned. But shortly after, they were suffering from some sort of short-term memory loss. And they even said to Moses, we should have just stayed in Egypt if we were going to starve in the wilderness, which is a truly insane Statement. So God told Moses to instruct them to come to one location each day and he would provide food for them. And each morning, bread fell from heaven. Each morning, God kept his promise. But centuries later, Even though it was God who provided for the Israelites, they were giving credit to Moses and they are standing before the Son of God saying to him, look, you fed 5,000 people yesterday and that was cool, right? But Moses fed the entire nation of Israel in the wilderness every single day. So come on, Jesus, show us another magic trick. So according to them, that miracle from the previous day was just a small feat compared to Moses' daily miracles. So they demanded Jesus outdo Moses to gain their trust. They wanted to see something bigger. But Jesus responded with a third gospel presentation. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread. heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So gospel lesson number three, 
The bread from Moses is temporary. The bread from God is forever. So the manna in the desert could only provide temporary fulfillment. They had to come back the next day. You could go as far to say that the best meal of your life can only provide temporary fulfillment. Listen, Lacey and I don't get to eat out as much as we we used to when we were dating or before we have kids. And so when we have the occasional opportunity to, to get out of the house and, and go eat a great meal, we, we cherish it. And one of our favorite date night spots is a Japanese place in Macon called Makata. If you're ever passing through Macon and you're going up 75, get off on the Riverside Drive exit, it looks like a hole in the wall. It's not a very overwhelming setting, but the food is worth the stop. And so I'm not exaggerating when I say when Makata is on the evening agenda, I'll fast for two meals. It's not, it's not a, a spiritual fast at all, but I will just skip breakfast and lunch so I can fully enjoy every bite of dinner. I will intentionally come to the table empty so I can leave full. And we get there, and we don't sit down at the hibachi grill because we didn't come for a show. And by the way, every hibachi chef in America has the same three tricks. They they make the rice into a heart, they make the onions into a volcano, and then they either catch a piece of shrimp in their pocket or they throw it into your mouth. Either way, no thanks, we've seen it. And also, I'm not a, a huge fan of group seating. You're going on a date night and then you end up with this party of eight celebrating a private birthday and it's just a recipe for a weird night. So Lacey and I go, we sit at our table. I order steak and chicken, double fried rice. You can leave the vegetables in the back. Lacey orders chicken, rice, and a little bit of sushi. And when our food comes, we enjoy it. We relish it. We savor it. But every single time, every single time, 10 minutes after our food hits the table, our plates will be empty. And 10 hours later, when we wake up the next morning, our stomachs will be empty. And so the bread from Moses was eaten, and, and the Israelites will be hungry a few hours later. But the bread of Jesus is forever. His bread provides eternal satisfaction because he himself is the bread. But they still can't connect those dots. In verse 34, they say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. We see the same response from the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Lord, give me, this, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well. They believe Jesus was talking about actual bread. They thought he was offering an unlimited supply of bread. They're, they're still looking for him to provide for their physical needs. They're thinking, this is great. I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to buy groceries. I don't have to cook. My family can just follow around this, this magician who can turn one man's lunch into a buffet for a whole town. Oh, Jesus, please give us this unlimited supply of bread. And then in verse 35, 
we see Jesus' response. The blindness of the crowd leads to the bluntness of Christ. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will of my own Father, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus had gone around and around with the crowd for a few minutes. He'd answered their questions. He'd corrected their misunderstandings, but they still didn't get it. So he lays it all on the table here. I'm not, I'm not talking about actual bread. I'm talking about me. I'm the bread. And as Jesus fleshed out this idea, he made two significant promises for those who believe in them. First, he promised satisfaction. Verse 35 says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Since Adam and Eve first looked outside God's design for satisfaction, human history has been characterized by the consistent pursuit of finding contentment apart from God. The author C.S. Lewis once quipped that human history is a long, terrible story of mankind trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. Last week, Lacey and I watched the the new Elvis movie, which came out several months ago, and I saw it illustrated in Elvis Presley's life story. You know, I've always been aware of Elvis, but I was born in 1989, so I wasn't familiar with all the details of his rise and, and fall. And towards the end of the movie, as his life was starting to unravel, his soon to be ex wife, Priscilla, identified his problem. She said to him bluntly, You are only happy. When you're on that stage, you're not happy with me, you're not happy with your daughter, you're not happy with your family, you're not happy with your friends, you're only happy when you're on that stage. And it's deeply ironic that although Elvis Presley was one of the most famous musicians who ever walked the earth, he struggled with contentment. He couldn't find peace. He never sustained joy, and ultimately he ran himself into the ground, chasing the temporary high of receiving praise and applause from other men. And this is the problem with seeking happiness in material things. You can't get enough. You will always be hungry and thirsty again. You will never acquire enough money, relationships, or or possessions. Everything on earth will eventually disappoint you because once you get what you so desire, you're just going to want the next thing even more. It will all leave you empty, but Jesus never will. When you center your life on him, he will satisfy you because he will keep his promises. 
He will give you purpose. He will guide your path. He is the only source of true satisfaction. And then second, he promises security. Often we talk about our salvation. We use first person language. If you're telling your testimony, you may say something like, I decided to follow Jesus when I was 12, or I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior at youth camp, or I I walked the aisle during a revival in 1994, but we cannot forget. We cannot forget when we tell those stories that God made the first move. He sent Christ to be our Savior. He rose him from the grave. He ascended him into heaven to sit it at his right hand. God moved first, and then we moved second. This is why Jesus says, whoever comes to me, in verse 37. This is why Jesus says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, in verse 40. God sets the table, but you must take a seat. You must walk in repentance and faith. You must place your trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do, he promises you two things. One, He will never cast you out. He will never lose those God has given him. Let me ask you, do you ever have days where you say, say, oh God, I don't know if I can make it. Do you ever have seasons where you cry out, Father, it's not getting better. It's only getting worse. I don't know if I'll ever get past this hurt, this this pain, this worry, this fear, this anxiety, this loss. I don't see any light in the tunnel. I look ahead and I just see more darkness. And it's in those moments that the good shepherd is right beside you and he says, I got you. I've got you because it's not about your ability to hold on to me. It's about my ability to hold on to you and I will never lose those who my Father has given me. And that's not all. He also says he will raise you up on the last day. When you believe in the Son, your your eternity is is sealed. You, You can't lose it. You can't misplace it. You can't mess it up. Nothing can separate you from God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Only He can satisfy you on earth and only He can secure your place in heaven. And if you read to the end of this chapter, you see many people in the crowd fall away from Jesus. Verses 41 and 42, some start to grumble and ask sarcastically, is is the son of Joseph the carpenter really really claiming to be the eternal bread from heaven. And then you go down to verses 60 through 66, and others claim that his teaching is is too hard, and they, they ask rhetorically, who can listen to it? 
Timothy, when they discovered that Jesus wasn't interested in pursuing their agendas, fulfilling their purposes, and satisfying their desires, they, they walked away. At the start of, of chapter 6, several thousand were following Jesus. By the end, only 12 disciples remained. And verse 66 says that Jesus turns to them and asks them, Do you want to go away as well? Hey, look, everyone else has left. Do you want to go too? And Peter answered him, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, they stayed because Christ was more than useful to them. He was precious to them. He's the bread of life who provides true fulfillment, true contentment true rest, true joy, and true peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And as we gather together on, on January 1st and, and we look ahead to a new year, Lord, we can often come and, and make all these resolutions for the new year that we're going we're gonna to lose this much weight and we're going to save this much money and we're going to travel to this place or that place and Father there's nothing inherently wrong with with getting healthier or more healthier physically you know financially or, or taking your family on a vacation but but Lord above all of that above all of that may we make it our collective goal in this new year to spend time every single day with the bread of life. To chase after every single day the bread of life. To set aside the things that are perishable and to do the things that are eternal. That we would make choices, we would make decisions, we would have habits and routines that would ripple throughout eternity. Father, we need your, your help in that. As Psalm 127 reminds us, if we try to build the house apart from you, we, we labor in vain. So help us in that work, Lord. We pray that you would be glorified in 2023 through this body of believers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.